Welcome to the Veterans Breakfast Club, where veterans tell their stories. I'm Todd DePastino, director of the Veterans Breakfast Club and host of today's program, which is a live recording of one of our storytelling events in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Veterans Breakfast Club is a nonprofit with a simple mission to give every veteran a chance to tell his or her story. We do this in our public storytelling programs, where veterans of all eras share their memories in their own words. For more information, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to our 9-11th Airlift Wing Breakfast. My name is Todd. We are going to begin with the national anthem before we even eat, uh, because we have the base honor guard here, and they've got to get going. So they're going to present the colors. And uh, we have the group from the Coriopolis United Methodist Church who are going to lead us in the national anthem. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight o'er the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rockets red glare the bombs bursting in air gave through the night that a flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. And let's, let's do the pledge also. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, and thank you to the base honor guard. Good morning, good morning. Hey, first off, I'm very glad that no one decided to take a knee or, or sit during the national anthem because I didn't want to have to escort anybody off the base. Although you do have the right to do that, and, and that's why we exist, is to give all Americans that right. So, But hey, thanks for being here. We're going to uh, serve breakfast in about five or ten minutes, but I just want to take a couple minutes and welcome you and, and thank you for, for coming out here on a day to honor our country and to share some stories. I was first introduced to this group a couple years ago and uh, I was just blown away the first time that I had a chance to attend one of these breakfasts and hear your stories. I talked with Todd and I said, we've got to find a way to host this out at the 9-11th airlift wing. And we were able to do that last year for the first time. And I'm pleased to announce and honored uh, that we were able to make it happen again this year. So thank you for making the trip out here, for fighting all the orange barrels. I know there's construction everywhere, and uh, getting here sometimes isn't the easiest to do. So 
So uh, thanks for carving time out of your busy schedules to be here with us. For those of you who have not been here before, a special welcome to you. Buckle in. You're going to have a great time. There are going to be some super stories here later this morning. You'll laugh. You'll cry. But I guarantee you, you will remember this and you'll be glad you came. For those of you who have been here before, welcome back. You know why you're here. And uh, same reason I am. These stories never get old. Uh, I could sit and listen to them all day. And uh, I appreciate all of you who will, who have shared your stories with us and for those of you today who will. So again, welcome. Uh, enjoy your time here. There are no force fields around the tables, so feel free as time permits to get up and mingle and, and say hello to someone you haven't met before, make some new friends. Uh, I, of course, will be uh, doing that myself. So before um, we turn you loose for breakfast, does anybody have any questions or comments for me before we get going? Yes, sir. Okay, so public service announcement. Uh, there are many companies in the area that are looking to hire veterans, and one that was just pointed out to me is UPS, who is currently hiring, looking for veterans. So Deb Crawl, if you want to get with her, she'll get you the information. So um, please pass that along if you know of any veteran looking for employment. I see the coffee has arrived. Yes, sir. What is our mission here? Okay, great question. So for those who don't know, um, we, have, we brought a vis aid right behind you, the mighty Hercules C-130. It is a tactical airlift aircraft, which means uh, larger aircraft take the big loads stateside overseas to wherever the hotspot of the day happens to be, and then we pick that up and take it to the front line. So what we call the beans and bullets, we load that up along with the troops and, and take them closer to the front lines where they need to be. So that, that's our primary mission. We also have an air medical evacuation mission, which is just as important when things don't go as planned and we end up with some wounded troops, soldiers, sailors, airmen, we have uh, medical capability on the C-130 where we have litters and medical experts who will give life-saving care from that front line to the nearest hospital, which may be a few hours away by flight. And so uh, they've done some studies on this and the statistics are amazing, but we have increased the probability of one of our troops making it from what years past probably would have resulted in a casualty. And we've increased that by 75% chance of them, of us being able to save their lives by giving them that initial life-saving care on the aircraft while they're en route to the hospital. And then of course our third mission is everything you don't see, and, and that's that expeditionary combat support, which is everything from security forces guarding the fence to civil engineers fixing things, building things, uh, aerial porters who take care of the loading and offloading of aircraft, and the list goes on and on. So uh, thanks for asking that. Uh, for those of you who haven't been here before, that's why we're here, that's why we exist. We are a reserve base, which means a vast majority of our folks live in the community, work in the community, their kids go to school with your kids, they're your neighbors, they go to your churches, 
your other clubs and groups, but they have also found a way to balance that family and that full-time employment with service in the Air Force Reserve. And if you've ever heard the term weekend warrior, you can throw that away, because that's, that's just, I wish that were the case, but not even close. Maybe a few decades ago, that really was sort of what the reserves were about. We were a strategic reserve that would train one weekend a month, two weeks a year, and then if World War III happened, they'd mobilize all of us and we'd go take care of Russia or whoever and then go back to our lives. But since 9-11, we have become more of an operational reserve. I have folks deployed somewhere around the world 24-7, 365. Any day, you name it, there are folks from your reserve base here somewhere across the world serving. There are times when it's a majority of the base and there are times when it might just be a few, maybe up to a dozen. But at any one time, we do have some folks deployed and I don't see an end to that anytime soon. So that's what we're all about. It's just amazing to me as a commander to be able to have over a thousand folks who are doing this voluntarily, there is no draft, and they are doing this uh, just out of a sense of patriotism and a sense of duty, and they find a way to balance, like I said, the family and a full-time job with service in the reserves. I couldn't be prouder as a commander to, to lead them through that service. Question here? Okay. Question is, when are we getting the C-17s? So there is a proposal that these 130s will be replaced by a larger strategic airlift known as a C-17. It's the primary strategic airlifter of the Air Force, which means it hauls those large loads from stateside overseas. It is proposed to happen in FY19, which would be one October of 18, so just about two years from now. The key to remember is it's in the proposed defense budget, but it has not been passed by Congress. So it's not the law of the land yet, but we anticipate that it will be when the next National Defense Authorization Act is passed, sometime in the next few months, we hope. And then we'll be able to make the formal announcement that it is the law of the land and we'll start working on the transition. Okay. I see they have started to serve, so I will get off the stage. I don't want to be between you and breakfast. So again, welcome, I enjoy your breakfast, and after you have a chance to eat, we will start with the story. So again, thanks for being here. Good to see all of you. All right, good morning again, everyone. I hope uh, you enjoyed your your breakfast, I apologize to some of the veterans who are hoping for SOS, but <laughs> there actually were some, there, there were some requests, uh, I'm not even kidding, so I actually like it, I, I don't know. I guess uh, that makes me a little old school. But uh, just two quick announcements. Uh, I didn't say earlier, but feel free to go out to the C-130 and take a tour of that if you, if you want and look around. And we'll be happy to give you a little more information on what it is we do. Uh, the second thing, I was asked by quite a few folks during the break about the air show. And I'm happy to announce that yes, it is coming back. Wings Over Pittsburgh, the open house air show, returns in May of 2017. Mark your calendars now. It's Mother's Day weekend, so bring mom out, bring the kids, bring the dog, bring grandma. Come on out and, um, and enjoy uh, what is one of the premier air shows in the country. Okay, so again, uh, welcome. 
thanks for coming here. I know you didn't come here to listen to me talk, so I'll get off the stage. I'm, I'm looking forward to the stories. I'll be hanging around. I, I, I love these, so I figure whatever work I have in the office can wait. It, it'll always be there, so I would much rather be here with you. So with no further ado, I'll introduce Todd, uh, who will take over the program and, and get it going from here. So enjoy. Thanks again for coming, and, and uh, take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thank you, Colonel. And I want to thank everybody here at the base for putting on such a great breakfast in such a picturesque environment uh, with the airplane and the hangars and the equipment. Uh, thank you very much. This is really a special event and we're very happy to be here and get started. Uh, my name is Todd. I'm the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club. And what we do, we're devoted to gathering veterans together with the public to have them share their stories. We call it creating communities of listening around veterans and their stories. And we believe that you know, it's good for veterans to share their stories. It can be healing for veterans to share their stories. For non-veterans like me, it's educational and it's inspiring and uh, I love coming to hear these stories and that's where we're going to do some storytelling today. Uh, I do want to make a couple announcements. One is that Jerry Fisher and his wife Lydian Fisher are once again uh, doing this trip to Washington DC for Korean War veterans and World War II veterans. It'll be on October 6th. Jerry, would you mind standing up or raising your hand so they know who to talk to if they have questions? There are pickups all throughout the region and they have flyers with more information. And uh, I also want to introduce our sponsors for today's event. We have two sponsors. One is Concerned Veterans for America and we have Chuck Schrankel here to speak for them. Chuck. Thank you and thank good Thank you morning. for sponsoring today. Uh, by way of introduction to the CVA, Concerned Veterans for America, uh, let me tell you what we're not, okay, to dispel any concerns. We're not looking for any money, we're not selling anything, nor will we be soliciting from you. Number one, we're not trying to privatize the VA. There's some rumors to that effect. We are trying to fix it. And number three, we are not a political, politically partisan group. What we are collecting, and we are collecting some, some things from you, we're collecting you and your voice. Uh, we're a legislative and lobbying group and we are lobbying for veterans' issues. It doesn't matter what family they are. And we're collecting veterans, veteran families, veteran advocates in our, in our group. We're working to make our elected officials accountable to veterans and veterans' issues. And this is happening across the country. The sorry fact is one-third of our veterans don't vote. And we're trying to change that, and what's really, really our big mission. In the past year, we've spent a lot of time, our group, making telephone calls across the country, particularly across the state of Pennsylvania, identifying veteran households and veteran advocates. Now it's time to get them out, the big get out the vote push. And we are pushing to get them to vote. We're not going to tell them how to vote, who to vote for. The issue is, the, the, the fact is, they need to vote so that our elected officials hear that we have a great voting block and that we're concerned about veterans' issues. And I have on the table some information, brochures, and I also have a sign-up sheet. If anybody can give us one, two, three hours a month, 
particularly the month of October, to make phone calls to selected, identified veteran households, we would certainly love to have you join us. Uh, you don't pay anything, we pay for dinners, we pay for pizza when we have these phone banks and so forth. So please take a minute to think about this. If you can give us a little bit of your time, please uh, give us the information on the sheet. We'll follow up and I can tell you, I can promise you we're not gonna overdo it. We're not gonna be calling you all the time and we're not gonna put any pressure on you. And I thank you for the time. Thank you, Chuck. John, we also have John Licious from Clear Captions Communications. And John, why don't you step up here on the other side of those speakers there. Thank you very much for sponsoring today. Okay, great, thank you. My name's John, I'm with Clear Captions. I see a lot of familiar faces here of people that we've set up with phones that I'm gonna tell you about here in a minute. But I did wanna tell you, I'm like Chuck. I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm not here to solicit anything and I don't have any political affiliation here today. So what I'm here to talk to you about is uh, Caption Telephone Service. My company's a partner with the government in providing what's called Caption Telephone Service, which is for anybody who has any difficulty communicating on the telephone because they have hearing loss. If you wear a hearing aid or you just have trouble hearing or whatever, and there are a number of you out here that I've seen, seen today that we've already set up with for a phone. But if you have, here, here's the thing, guys. If anybody's having trouble hearing me right now, or if you're looking at somebody at your table and you can tell they're having trouble hearing me, this phone is probably going to be a good thing for them. Okay? There's no cost for this phone. Caption telephone service is available to any American resident that has a hearing loss. What's more than that, so if you're an American with hearing loss, you qualify. What's more, we've all been contributing into the fund that pays for this through our telephone bill since 1992. It's paid for through what's called the Telecommunication Relay Service Fund, which is a fund that was created way back in the 90s to provide communication assistance for people that are completely deaf, deaf and blind, have speech impairments, and then have hearing loss, normal hearing loss. So if you go home and take a look at your phone bill, you'll see under the surcharges and other fees, one federal fee, it's called the Federal Universal Connectivity Fee, some companies call it something different, but you contribute about a dollar to two dollars a month into the fund that pays for this. So if you have hearing loss, if you've been paying a telephone bill since 1992, you probably paid for this phone two times over already, so you're entitled to it. If you're interested, if you have any questions, I'll be set up right here until the end of the event. You can come by, I'll answer any questions. We come to your home, we set the phone up for you, we show you how to use it, it's guaranteed for life. If nothing else, you would never have to buy another phone for the rest of your life. Um, the phone, if you could buy this phone on the retail market, it would cost you around $400 with the technology that's in it. But you can have it at no cost. So stop by if you're interested. Uh, talk to any of the other folks. I see a couple of people here that have, the, have been using our phones for a while now. And uh, happy to answer any questions that you have. And thank you very much for everything that you've all done for us. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate that.
uh, if you have not been to one of our events before, you should come. We have them all over the place. We have them in Penn Hills and North Hills and in Beaver County. Uh, we, do, we do them in, in Fayette County. We're starting a new one in Delmont. Uh, we're doing a second one in Johnstown coming up in December. And again, our mission is to gather veterans with non-veterans and just have the veterans share their stories. Our schedule is published on our website and I send out emails and we also send out this mailing. Thank you very much, Dan. Dan's a Marine, but he's a nice guy anyhow. Um, we send out this newsletter to everybody's household so you can see what our schedule is. This has our schedule through this month. Well, I'll be sending out a new one next week. If you don't get this in the mail, it's because we don't have your address. Please let me know your address. Leave it with us and so you, we could send you our schedule. We also have stuff for sale. One is Veteran Voices, the magazine of the Veterans Breakfast Club, where we take the stories that are told at our breakfast and in our interviews, and we write them up with great photos. And uh, we have that magazine on sale there. We have our, our, our 2016 issue was published earlier this year. You could buy it for 10 bucks. You could buy a great biography of Bill Malden for 10 bucks, Leo. I have one. You have one. Very good, yes. I really Is it a great it. book? It's a great, I don't know who the author is, but he was really good. <laughs> I'd be happy to sign the book and sell it to you for 10 bucks. Uh, we got shirts and hats and all that kind of stuff. And we also interview veterans. Kevin Farkas is the man behind the screen. He is the director of Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh. He and Brian Cimini take photos at this event and they record the events, they record the stories, and they also record uh, longer interviews with veterans. And our whole thing, you know, our whole mission is storytelling. And so let's get to some storytelling. Because so many of you had to put your birth dates down to get on this space, I know exactly how old everybody is. And I looked last night, I thought, who is the oldest vet here? Guy Prestia, you win. Guy, would you mind standing up? Guy, how old are you? 94. You're 94. Yeah, 94. I was born 1922, so you can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. When did you join the Army and why did you join? Well, for probably three reasons. I'm uh, patriotic and I'm loyal and they came after me. <laughs> but whatever, I was drafted, yeah, in 1942, and uh, I was uh, in a service for uh, overseas for three years. And, three years uh, overseas? Yeah, I was overseas for three years, and uh, I started off under General Patton and Eisenhower. I went overseas with the uh, 45th Infantry Division which is the Thunderbirds, the Thunderbird Division from Oklahoma and Colorado, New Mexico and Arizona, out there. And so uh, we made the invasion from North Africa. We went into Sicily, and that was in uh, July the uh, 11th, 1943, made the invasion there. And then from there, when that campaign was over, we went into Salerno, which was in Italy, and all the way up through Italy, and. Oh, up to uh, Anzio, we were in Casino, where they had the Abbey there and the Mona Casino, and all the way through southern France, and all the way across into Germany, and across Germany, and my unit liberated Dachau prison camp. Uh, that was on the 29th of April, 1945. 
near Munich, Germany, and uh, that was about two weeks after that, I think it was in May the 8th, that the war ended in Europe at that time. So it was a long haul, but I started off, I was only 18 years old, but when I came out, I was about 23, so it, it was a long haul and uh, different type of warfare. We had to sleep in the ground in foxholes every night and uh, going across there. We didn't have any anything uh, to ride in except when we made invasions. We were involved in three invasions. The first one was in uh, Sicily, and then the next one was in, uh, the, the, in Salerno, and then we invaded in southern France. So, like I say, it's been a long haul, but I, it's only by the grace of God that I'm here today. I can see that uh, a lot of my buddies are gone and lots of them I lost during the war. And uh, I was one of the smallest men in my company and they gave me the BAR to carry. It was the heaviest weapon. It weighed 21 pounds, but I had a team. I had a, an assistant gunner. I had uh, a, an ammo carrier. There was three of us in that unit, the BAR team and we worked together. And I lost my, uh, my one uh, fella in, in the unit there. He was my assistant gunner. He was up in Anzio and he got hit with a sniper one morning and lost a knife. So then I had to get somebody new after that. But like I say, you see those things every day and uh, you just thank God that you're here. And uh, it's, been a pleasure to be here and meet a lot of other fellow veterans and uh, perhaps uh, make a video or do something like that and meet them. I've been at several schools and gave talks there to the children because they, they would, and I would encourage you that if you ever get called to some unit, whether it's the schools or whether Rotary Clubs or Kiwanis Clubs or whatever, don't hesitate to go there because they do want to hear your stories. And uh, they would rather talk to you in person and ask questions instead of reading things out of a book. So, you know, it gets in a book, the kids get kind of bored with something like that. I tell you, Guy, I mean, I'm a historian, and it, it, what struck me when we started doing the Veterans Breakfast eight years ago, it's one thing to read about these things that happened. It's another thing to actually meet somebody who was there. I taught a course on the Vietnam War for many years before I really knew Vietnam veterans. And it's just amazing to hear the stories firsthand. And one thing that you mentioned to me, Guy, and then we could, we could, I could leave you alone. Um, I do remember you saying that, you know, obviously you saw a lot of combat. Yes. Um, you know, sleeping in the ground for, yeah. for all those months and years. But it was quite a different thing liberating Dachau, the concentration camp. Yeah. That that was something you weren't prepared for. Right. We were not prepared for that. We, uh... Uh, we had been through, uh, a lot of the men at that time had been all the way from North Africa. Some of them had uh, two and three years service, but when we got to Dachau, we were not prepared for anything like that. So number one, uh, I saw a lot of the soldiers that sat down and cried when they saw that. Many of the soldiers vomited, and many of us did both, because we could not understand why a human being uh, could be so cruel and to uh, do those things. I mean, when we visited that camp, 
there were four towers there that had machine guns up on top. Of course, they had to be knocked out before we got into the camp. And then going in there, we got to see the uh, gas chambers. We got to see the places where where they uh, took people in there. And, and uh, Heinrich Himmler gave his soldier a medal for inventing a process. They invited so many of those people in there once in a while to take a shower. And he had a mechanism in there that when they were in there taking a shower, automatically the water turned off and gas came through the line. And nobody that was in there could stand that because that K-7 or whatever it was called, 8 or something like that, nobody could survive more than eight minutes. So everybody that went into that place for a shower, they would, they would get uh, executed right there. So it, it, was just, it was a bad thing to see all the uh, death and everything at that camp, and men, women, and children on those uh, freight cars, those flat cars, just like logs laying on there. So many of them were, were gone. But the liberation there, we got out 31,000 out of that camp. We weren't allowed to uh, give them any food because they were so uh, undernourished that that would have killed them. We were allowed to give them cigarettes and candy, hardtack candy that we had in our pack, but nothing else. We couldn't give them any food. We turned all the inmates over to the uh, medics and they uh, distributed them to different hospitals in uh, Germany and other countries and got them nourished back to health. But it was sad to see them there. You probably saw pictures of those. I'm sure that there were pictures, maybe on TV or in the book or something. You can see the different ones. Now, at that camp, there were six Americans. I have a tally at home that has every country and how many inmates were at that camp at the time it was liberated. And uh, there, were, there were six there that were Americans that were in that camp. So it was, uh, but President Eisenhower, he told all of his photographers, he said, now when you go to these camps, whether it's Auschwitz or Buchenwald or Dachau or whatever other camp you go to, he said, be sure that you take a lot of pictures, and I mean a lot of pictures, because there will come a day that back home in the States that people are not going to believe what you're seeing here today. So that's what happened. So if you go to the museum, the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., you can see a lot of the evidences that are there. You'll see footage, actual footage of atrocities that were done at that time. And so, like I say, people today are more educated than what they were. But for a long time, they just denied that the Holocaust ever existed. They think that it was just a made-up story. But what I say about that is they were not there. They you were, were not there. there to see it, and I saw that. So. Thank you so much, Guy. I also, I also thought we'd have uh, another, I think, Alex, you might have been runner-up for oldest veteran. You were, uh, Alex is slightly younger than, um, than Guy Prestia, but I wanted Alex to speak today, and there's his picture here, uh, because Alex, you are a Pearl Harbor survivor. Yes, while I was in Schofield Barracks, uh, I was in the pack train, and I don't know if you people know what a pack train is, 
it's uh, mules. And when I uh, went over there on a president in Cleveland, they asked me uh, to line up, and I was one inch over six foot. And they said, we're going to put you in a pack train. I said, what's a pack train? They said, Did you pack mules. I said, my goodness. When I went up there, they had 400 mules in the corral. And they said, six of them mules is going to be yours as long as you're here. I, you know, I got to hear everyone, and they always telling me the mules kick, they bite. I said, gee whiz, I don't need that. <laughs> so they, they, made, they gave me six mules. They had a serial number on their neck, like 7K11. And uh, they give you six mules, so you had to write the number down so you knew which ones was yours. And I had the same six mules for four and a half years. Wow. And I just want to emphasize to the younger people, yes, the mules were once very important to the Army. And also look at this picture up here on the screen. Uh, I don't know how well you could see it, but you could see that Alex is in one of them goofing around with his buddy, and they're wearing the old World War I style helmets. So when they were in the, when Alex was in the Army before Pearl Harbor, they were still using World War I equipment, World War I. That's right. They had all World War I uh, your helmets, your O3. Their gas mask was the newest part, and I says, I didn't even know what a mule was until I went down a pack train. Alex, could you tell us about December 7th, 1941, what you remember? 1941, I was on stable police. If you know what stable police is, it's just like KP. I says, you had to feed the mules one can, coffee can of oats and a handful of hay. When they got finished, you put them in a corral. And then after that, we had to take them out of, up to Mount Kahala to feed them because we weren't allowed to use any oats. We weren't allowed to use any hay because they strafed the stables. And uh, in fact, three months later, we shipped all the oats and we got a five gallon uh, paint can filled with lead. And so that's why we had a didn't allow, allowed us to feed them any oats or any hay. And we, we kept taking them up the mountains. And I didn't even know what the pack train was until I went down there. And I seen all in the mules. There was 400 mules. Do you remember the Japanese attacking on December 7th? I was, uh, I was on stable police that morning. Four o'clock, they got me up. I had to feed my six mules. After I fed them, I put them in a corral, come back and cleaned the stall out, hosed it out, cleaned it out, everything up. And then I had to take the mules all up in the mountain range, feed them, because we weren't allowed to feed them no oats or no hay. Alex, I know you were wounded on December 7th. Yes. How were you wounded? This is what I got strafed. 
when they was uh, bombing our hangar, our uh, stables, they thought they were having issues warehouse, and a piece of shrapnel from the roof hit the park, uh, the hard top, and I was laying under a water trough, and a piece of shrapnel was hit me in the head, and a veteran, uh, veterinarian colonel, Colonel Cox, he said, what happened to you? I said, I don't know. I said, I'm, I was bleeding. He told his uh, aide to go down and get uh, a needle and a thread, and he sewed it, and they just took it out last year. So you've carried that shrapnel around in your head for 70-some years. 70-some years. I didn't even know it. And that's why I got this hole in my head. Yeah. So, so. Alex, it is so special to have you here today. There aren't many Pearl Harbor survivors left. No, there's not. We had 65 here in Pittsburgh. I'm it. I'll be 91, and I says that I'm proud to be a survivor. So, thank you very much, Alex, for coming today. You know, my thought, looking over the roster of all the people who are here today, it did strike me that there, we have at least four generations of veterans here. You know, we have Alex, who was in the Army before Pearl Harbor, and then we have young men and women who served in Iraq and Afghanistan and everything in between. So I just thought it would be really appropriate and interesting to have veterans from different eras, different conflicts kind of share a story. And I saw that uh, Bob Harbula here was going to attend. So I asked him if, well, I didn't ask him if he'd be willing to talk. I told him that he was going to talk. Would you mind standing up, Bob? Thank Bob, you, Todd. That is you. Yeah, 19 years old. You're 19 years old. You joined the Marines. Why? So I didn't have to go to work in a meal. And my brother was a Marine, and he'd come home like on a Thursday every other week and stay until Tuesday. He had a car, he had lots of girlfriends, nice uniform. Then what do I want to work in the mill for? That's exactly what every man wants. He looked good. But it didn't turn out the way he had it. His was a special job, it's something to do with mess halls. And you were sent to Korea during the Korean War. Well, I volunteered to go to Korea. You volunteered? Why would you volunteer to go to Korea? I was stationed in D.C. at 8th and I. That's where the fancy Marines are. They dress uniforms and put on parades. And we um, guard the president when he goes to Camp David, or it was called Shangri-La at that time. And we'd guard him, check out all the bridges and hide in the woods to make sure nobody's fooling around up there. And then we'd guard the perimeter. And after two years of this, oh, get back to one other things. We were were special duty people down in DC. John Wayne made the movie Sansa Iwo Jima. So the the Marines from 8th and I were ushers at the Warner Theater in downtown DC for all the congressmen and their families to come see the movie. And after watching John Wayne for two days, saw the movie three times each day, I said, I need a war. What am I doing here? So right after that, the Korean War started and I volunteered. They wanted 
10 men from the So you volunteered for the Korean War because of John Wayne. Right, exactly. He, he had me pumped. <laughs> and, uh, so then I um, joined the 1st Marine Division out in Camp Pendleton. And a lot of people don't know too much about the Korean War. Uh, they called it a police action. Well, the Korean War was as bloody and as bad as any war that's ever been fought. A good example, I'd say, is the, in the Second World War, the 1st Marine Division were awarded three presidential unit citations. These are for great battles that they fought and they won. One was Guadalcanal, the other was Peleliu, and the other was Okinawa, and that was during the whole war. In Korea, we got three presidential union citations in the first seven months to show you the brutality and the, how bad it was over there. One was for Incheon and Seoul, the other was for the Chosen Reservoir, and the other was for the Chinese Spring Offensive in the following year. And Bob, I do want to you know, interrupt you just because you saw so much action at Incheon and then the Battle of Seoul. And, but I'd really like you to talk today, if you could, about the Chosen Reservoir because it's a, it's a legendary marine battle and there's going to be a, a PBS documentary coming out in November that you're in right. talking about this battle. For people who, do, who have never heard of the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir in Korea, could you tell a little bit about what it was like there? Right. I had a call from PBS. They wanted to interview me for a new documentary that's coming out in November of this year, a two-hour documentary on the American Experience uh, program. It's all about the Battle of Chosen. That's what it's called, the Battle of Chosen. And a lot of people never heard of this battle. In this battle, there were 17 Medals of Honor, 80 Navy Crosses, and many other awards. We had 12,000 Marines surrounded by 150,000 Chinese that were sent there to annihilate the Marines. Even on the Peking radio uh, on December 2nd of 1950, they were broadcasting that the, um, the distinction of the 1st Marine Division was imminent. Even the newspapers back here in the States were saying we had no chance. And to appreciate this battle, you have to know the conditions. It was 20 to 40 below zero constantly. We had no food, we had no water, everything was frozen like a rock. A lot of our ammunition wouldn't explode. Our star shells didn't light up all the time. Uh, the base plates on the mortars were being cracked because of the, uh, the, it had no cushion to land on when they put the mortar in. So these Chinese were trying to kill us and we didn't like getting killed. <laughs> so 60 years, or 66 years later, they're finally gonna show the people of America about the battle of Chosen. And you're in for a real treat because I'm in the movie. Bob, yours, I, I hope you told in the documentary, I hope this made the documentary, that story about the Tootsie Rolls. Would um, you mind sharing that? Up at this one town of Hagaru, which is right in the middle of the battle, and we're stretched out on this single dirt road 
We have um, a couple regiments here, a battalion here, and a battalion there. Well, Hagaroo was the key to everything. That was the division headquarters. And we needed mortar ammunition at Hagaroo. And all, all the roads were cut. We, we had no road. Everything had to be dropped to us. So um, the radio operator gets on the phone and calls down to the rear base down at Hung Nam, where the Air Force is, and requested Tootsie Rolls, which is the code word for mortar ammunition. So what happens, here comes pallets dropping down on us, filled with Tootsie Rolls. Now the Tootsie Rolls, oh, that's funny, you know, but it really saved our lives. Because remember I said we had no food, no water, we ate snow for water, and we carried the Tootsie Rolls inside our jackets to keep them soft so we could chew on something. And they also, if there was a, one of the trucks had a hole in its gas tank, we'd plug it with Tootsie Roll. If the water, anything that needed plug, we'd plug it with Tootsie Roll. So it actually saved our lives at the chosen, Battle of Chosen. And the uh, president of Tootsie Roll, he just died recently. But he would send us Tootsie Rolls. Every time we'd have a reunion, every year, we'd get Tootsie Rolls from the Tootsie Roll Company. So it was an ongoing thing, but we really appreciated the Tootsie Rolls. Well, thank you, Bob, for sharing the... What, one more thing. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay, to the Air Force. I have to pay a tribute, not only because my son's retired the Air Force, but because of what happened at the Air, uh, at Hagaroo, we had 4,500 wounded Marines. Now, you have to imagine how can you cover or put 4,500 wounded Marines on trucks? There was only 12,000 of us. We didn't have enough trucks to bring them out. So our engineers had bulldozed a strip and they were three quarters done to possibly land an Air Force C-47. Now you know an Air Force C-47 only carries about 28 men. So you know how many trips they have to make. And the Chinese are all around and they're doing the shooting. So the Air Force took, came in, this one pilot came in, Air Force pilot, and he landed, he says, I'll try it. And he came in and he landed his plane and he took out 28 wounded Marines. So he says, I'm gonna do better next time. So he came in and he landed again. Now we got a whole string of airplanes, C-47s. When one came in and filled up, the other one would come in. So one's taken off, the other one's coming in. And they were able to get 4,500 wounded Marines that most of them would have died because we couldn't protect them because you, you don't have enough men. And, under the uh, 12,000 Marines, we had uh, 800 KIAs. There was 2,200 Army KIAs that were close to us. They, they got wiped out. And we had uh, 6,000 wounded, and everybody had frostbite. If you were on the lines, you had frostbite. How did they bring in replacements? We didn't, well, some of them landed on the planes coming in. There was only about 500 that they were able to bring in. And these were Marines that were wounded at previous battles. And they brought, they were able to fly 500 in while they took it, took the other ones out. Thank you very much, Bob. And I hope everybody watches that documentary.
Now, your son, Scott, is retired Air Force. Did your dad tell you not to join the Marines? I took a look at uh, the options at the time, and uh, I went to military school, and the only ones that were up at 4 a.m. running with us as cadets were uh, Marine officers. And I said, I don't want to be doing this at 30, 40 years old. So I, I opted for the Air Force, and I uh, haven't looked back. Actually, it was uh, because I wanted to fly. Because you wanted to fly. Very good. You know, we're at an Air Force base. I'm glad that Bob said something nice about the Air Force. I've heard a few jokes about the Air Force today. Uh, Harvey, you had something nice to say about the Air Force, and you're a Navy guy. You were a Navy pilot, right? Yes, sir. And you told me that on your cross-country trips, you would avoid the naval air stations. Yes. And you'd prefer to go to an Air Force base. Absolutely. Why? Well, first of all, I want to thank you, Colonel, for your hospitality. When I was uh, a student and also when I was an instructor, we would uh, take training missions that involved uh, several legs across country, like say we would leave Jacksonville uh, and uh, stop in Texas and then on to the West Coast. And we made it a point never to uh, stop at naval air stations. We always tried to stop at Air Force bases because the Air Force had the best facilities and this is, this is a testament to that. This is a magnificent facility. What would happen is we would pull into an Air Force base, they would park us right in front of the operations. There would be a uh, ground power unit available to start the uh, airplane. There would be a fuel truck there right Johnny on the spot. And uh, if there was a problem with the airplane, there was a uh, duty mechanic that would always be available. If we were to use a Navy base, uh, we would go in there and we would find that uh, we would be parked in remote parking, the fuel truck was broken, and the start cart would only put out about uh, 10 PSI of air pressure, which would not start anything. And additionally, if the airplane broke, uh, if we were at an Air Force base, they had uh, just wonderful facilities. The uh, officers' quarters were great. The O clubs were great. It was just uh, it was just a wonderful thing. And I also want to say I'm uh, honored and humbled to uh, be among this group of veterans who. Uh, served their country and their flag before it became so politically correct. Thank you very much, Harvey. Where is Harry? There you are, Harry. Once again, looking over the roster, seeing that Harry Van Riper was going to be here, I just thought it would be such a privilege for people to hear your story. There you are. Is that in Vietnam? Yes, yes. How old were you? 19. You were 19 years old? Uh, why did you join the Army? I was drafted. You were drafted? Yes. How'd you feel about joining the Army? Well, I was an Army brat. I was raised patriotically, and I, I knew that, you know, we had a price to pay for freedom, so... Okay. I went. I turned down OCS and all that other stuff. I didn't want to stay longer than I had to, but I, I went. <laughs> you went. And did you know that you were going to be going to Vietnam? Yes, pretty, pretty much so. Everybody was going at that point. It was 1967, October, when I was drafted. What you told me was that you were kind of a hellraiser before you joined the Army. My dad was an alcoholic. Uh, I was kind of the rebellious kid. My sister was an overachiever, but I was um, in trouble for drinking and fighting a lot, things like that. So uh, the Army was good for me, really. It, 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 uh, it changed me 180 degrees. I... Um, I was in the holding area, and I heard a drill sergeant tell a guy, I'm going to make you a squad leader, man. You've been hustling. You're not going to have to do guard duty KP or any of that stuff. 
So I said, hmm. <laughs> I turned 180 degrees at that moment and um, never looked back. Um, and what was your job in Vietnam? What did you do? Well, I was on the ground when I first went there, but I did have track driving school. The driver at the time caught an RPG and lost two arms and a leg. And they, they asked for volunteers because of the road mines and the RPGs. They didn't make you drive. And I was the only one who had some driving school. I went through track driving school, so I volunteered. Harry, could you tell us what a track is? What is a track? It's an armored personnel carrier. It um, holds a platoon. Okay. And uh, has a 50 caliber machine gun on it and two 60s, M60s. And uh, we actually had an experimental M79 with a canister on it with 12 rounds in it. So you drove the track, you were the, the is it called APC, is that the yeah, same armored thing? Personnel carrier, yeah. Armored personnel carrier, yeah. Armored personnel carrier. yeah. And um, do you want to talk about the day that's depicted here, August 19th, 1968? Well, the day before that we got hit and had a four and a half hour firefight. Uh, they didn't know what the uh, strength was at the time, but we ran into a reinforced regiment. Uh, we were by the Parrot Speak where the Ho Chi Minh Trail comes in. And the next day, we went into this area. And uh, you can see my track sitting there uh, in front of that tree line. Uh, this was after I was hit. Uh, we got hit. Uh, we were on break. And as soon as we moved out, like all hell broke loose. You could see RPGs bouncing everywhere. And I reached for reverse. Everybody was backing up, because RPGs uh, go right through PCs. And I looked at the guys on the ground, and I, I couldn't back up. Okay, so you're driving that track. Um, you had to get out of there, and you put it in reverse, and you saw guys who were hit, who were lying on the ground behind you, and you just, you couldn't run over them, they so were you actually, stopped. They were actually in front of us, because the, oh, the guys were on the ground in front of us, and so I'm looking at those guys on the ground, and my 50 caliber machine gun was going, and I, I just couldn't back up. Okay. And then... Boom. <laughs> um, somehow I, um, with one arm, my arm was dangling by skin. My, my leg was almost shot off. So a rocket came into the trap? Yeah, it blows up inside. Yeah, they, they hit and blow up inside. Okay. And um, if I hadn't had my hand up on that gear shift, uh, the first time I told my story, I woke up in a cold sweat 2 o'clock in the morning and thought, if I hadn't had my hand up there, I'd have lost that arm too because it would have been in the same plane as my other arm. Because frequently they, they lose both arms when you get hit in a PC like that. So you, were, you had one hand up, and that saved? That saved my arm, yes. Your arm. Yes. And then somehow I climbed out of there. I don't know how I did it. I mean, the open hatch above me, my leg was shut up. I, I, I got out of there and hit the ground face first. And um, you can see right there, my track is on the very left-hand corner at the bottom. And all those tracks are the ones that backed up. They're going through the firefight. There's air support coming in. And I laid there till they uh, could fight back up to where I was. Um, they tried to put blood in my arm, and my veins were all collapsed. And so they cut my ankle down, and they, they got plasma in there and um, somehow saved me. I, I had a 15% chance of living after they operated on me. Were you conscious this whole time? I was conscious most of the time. I, I blacked out here and there. Uh, I can remember the medic coming to me saying, oh my God, Van Riper, uh, when you had medical training, they taught you, you're supposed to say, you're going to be all right, buddy, you're going to be all right. And my, my medic goes, oh my God, Van Riper, and she thanks, buddy. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I tensed my shoulder when I was on the ground there. I figured, you know, I was bleeding pretty badly, and I guess I saved enough to, to still be here. I had a 15% chance of living after they operated on me. Um, I remember the plane ride back to um, Kuchi. Um, I remember them putting me on the operating table, and he said, you lost your arm. I said, yeah, I know. I couldn't see. My eyes were blistered shut. So you're, you were burned also then? Oh, yeah, you my face. Yeah, well, an explosion. Your face was... Explosion. I had a collapsed lung. And yeah. a collapsed lung. Yeah. I didn't wake up for about eight days. Um, they didn't think I was going to make it. And they hit an ammo dump right by the hospital. And that thing started blowing up, and they said I started running. They, they said I jumped up and started running. I pulled the tubes out. And <laughs> so While I, you were at the hospital. Yeah, I think that that explosion, those explosions are what woke me up. I might not have woken up. Or I, I like to think God woke me up. But. Yeah. When was this picture taken? Is this receiving a Purple Heart? Yeah, that was um, while I was standing, so my leg was healed enough. That was probably two or three months after I was hit at Valley Forge Hospital. And then there's this wonderful picture of that's you looking pretty happy in a hospital bed. She is cute. <laughs> with a pretty nurse. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a month after I was hit. That was a month. Okay, I a hit, month after I hit uh, Fort Dix. And that, that, I've, I've since learned that that's a donut dolly when we showed that picture at Memorial Park. Right. Yeah, I didn't know that. But uh, I've tried to find her. That historian tried to find her, and that's how I found my 5th Infantry Regiment Association, because um, he was trying to find her and found the guy. I was trying to find the guy that drug me to the medic track. Right. And his name was Robert Logan, and uh, he found the 5th Infantry Regiment Association, and he had a picture of him, so that's how I um, ended up joining that association, and I've been going to reunions and so forth. Harry, you know, you know, you've known me long enough to know that I ask a lot of stupid questions, so I'm going to ask you a stupid question. Was it hard to go through the rehabilitation to learn how to live with one arm? No, not at all. It was, um, I'm not saying I never got frustrated, but um, it gave me one of the greatest strengths in my life um, because I had to think things through very thoroughly before I could do them because I have to do them differently. I went through graduate school. Uh, molecular genetics labs and whatever, and I was done before the guys with two hands. So you became a biologist. The, yes, yes, I'm a physiologist. It takes a lot of thought to do something with one hand when techniques usually have two hands involved. So it, it's just, I do it with everything. I think things through very thoroughly, and so it's a big asset. That's one of the biggest assets I've, I've had in my life. That's so, amazing. Yeah, it is. Yes. Could you repeat strikes. the question, Harry, so oh, that everybody yeah, can no, hear? Yeah, yeah, they were very, uh, they dropped, in one of those pictures, they, they showed, I don't think you showed that one, but they showed uh, baseball bombs going off in there. They're anti, a big bomb drops in and releases like a ton of little baseball-sized anti-personnel bombs. And uh, yeah, yeah, they were, the Air Force saved our butt many times. Uh, napalm and yeah. I was hit four months and eight days after I finished training. Uh, somehow ended up in E4, I don't know, but I, after training, I only have four months and eight days. I, I didn't make my year in Vietnam, obviously. Harry, it doesn't seem that you have um, bitterness toward this experience. I, I'm just trying to imagine myself in a similar situation, being drafted, sent to Vietnam, losing an arm, you know, being very severely traumatized by the war. But you never felt bitter about that? or No, not at all. I don't even feel bad about the guy that shot me. He was fighting for what he was believed in. I mean, just like we were doing. I have no animosity. I, um, 
Vietnam made me strong. I, you know, if, if, if that hadn't happened to me, I don't know who I'd be right now. As I, said, I was a hellraiser. God knows I could have, you know. It, 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 no, Army saved my life, really. It saved my life. I almost lost it there, but it saved my life. Yeah. No, it's... Thank you so much, Harry, for coming today. I appreciate it. Thank you for talking. It's so great. You know, I, I knew that we were going to have the C-130 here. And um, I know that so many of you have had experiences in the C-130 because that plane has been around for a long time. And so I asked Ben Wright, who is on our board and uh, is just such a, a, a tireless volunteer for the Veterans Breakfast Club. He emcees breakfast. He, he does so much. Uh, you flew one of these things. Oh, yes. For many years, right? Yes. Oh, yes. And uh, if you haven't been on board an aircraft, take advantage of, of doing this because the C-130 uh, is one of the workhorses. They first flew the A models in the mid-50s, and they're still making uh, J models uh, with it. They've had a lot of upgrades and improvements and those things, but always referred to it as a, uh, a very forgiving aircraft, uh, you know, and it's also very stable. Uh, the wing commander talked about rigging it for uh, aeromedical, uh, aeromedical evacuations, but you can do airland, uh, short field, uh, as well as airdrops of personnel, equipment, and container delivery systems. And it was a good airplane because you would put it where you wanted it to be and trim it up, and it would stay there and doing that. Uh, Todd asked me to talk about uh, the airlift of refugees out of Saigon uh, in April of 1975. I last flew uh, into Tonsonut Air Base at Saigon on April the 28th. And that night we lost one of our wing aircraft on the ramp that took a martyr in the right wing and erupted into flames. And the crew ran off of it and jumped on uh, another aircraft um, that was taxing out. And they got on it, and the North Vietnamese were following it down the runway with martyr shells. And that was the last aircraft out of, a fixed-wing aircraft out of Tonsonut. Uh, the 29th, everybody that left Saigon either left by boat, uh, by water, and you probably saw a lot about all the people that went, or by rotary wing, uh, is how they got out. But what we were doing... Uh, we stripped out the back of the airplane, put down pallets, covered it with uh, cardboard, and just laid straps across there. And the embassy would bring uh, the people out on buses that they had cleared for us to airlift out. And we would open the aft ramp and door, like what you see here, and we'd shut down the two inboard engines so there wasn't as much jet blast out of the engines. And they would put people on till we couldn't get any more people on. Uh, and when it was stuffed full sardine class, uh, we buttoned up and left. How many people would you fit on there? I mean, well, they, they, look that they, big. Would, they would tell us, call up on a radio, that we had 175. We weren't supposed to carry more than that. But my last trip out of there, we had 220-something, as best we could count, because there were kids and all this kind of stuff, but about 220. And so what we were doing with this, this aircraft is the, uh, the North Vietnamese had SA-7s, which are a, a shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missile. It's very similar to the U.S. Army's uh, red-eye rocket, and they would visually acquire and fire it at you. And at that time, they had uh, visible plumes on them. They no longer do. So since it was a heat-seeking missile, what we were doing was coming in over the airfield 
and doing what we called a random steep approach, that it was unlike normally when you go into an airport, you fly a predictable traffic pattern for everything to flow. Well, we just flew unpredictably to show up on, uh, on final approach. In fact, what we would do, if you notice the four, four engine props, we would uh, descend to 10,000 feet where you could decompress, open up the troop doors, and we would have a loadmaster at each troop door with a very pistol. A very pistol fires a flare, and the flare was more intense heat than the engines. So if they saw a plume of a rocket, they could fire the flare, and it'd draw the, the rocket away from uh, the aircraft. So we were doing this visually. We'd pull it back uh, to just before the engine or the props were driving the engine, or what's called negative torque. And then those four props are like four big barn doors. Uh, and we'd configure, and you could come down out of the sky like a rock uh, under very controlled uh, conditions. So we would be descending down through holes in the cloud deck visually. And we'd have other guys coming up out of them, so you watch the hole to make sure there wasn't another aircraft coming through the hole that you wanted to go through because there was no instrument flight control for you. We were doing this all visually. And we, we had it down to where we would taxi in, shut down the two inboards. Uh, an intelligence person would come up on a flight deck and tell us best they knew where the gun emplacements and things were around the airfield because they were rapidly losing control of the perimeter and the whole area and stuff people on and we'd button up and go. So we would be on the ground about 15 minutes from touchdown to takeoff is uh, by the time they did this for four or five days uh, that we could put people on. And I've run into a number of Vietnamese uh, around the states uh, who were airlifted out. I couldn't say any of them flew on my aircraft, but I mean, some amazing people who came out of Vietnam and contribute to the, to the U.S. But I flew the 130 in Europe uh, out of Dias Air Force Base, Texas, and flew all over the Western Pacific and the Philippines, uh, primarily in Thailand uh, towards the end of, of the Vietnam War. It's a fine aircraft and it's dependable and it does the job that it was designed to do extremely well. Thank you very much, Ben, for <laughs> wonderful. Thank you for sharing that story and giving us a little history lesson on the C-130. Nick Grimes, I'm forcing Nick to talk today and I could do that because I'm his boss. He, is, uh, he joined us in April. He's the director of our post 9-11 veterans storytelling project. Nick has been hosting events in the evening. You know, we have most of our events in the morning. And it turns out that people with jobs can't come to a Tuesday morning breakfast. So Nick has been doing uh, Thursday evening events and weekend events. And uh, Nick did two tours in Afghanistan uh, with the 10th Mountain Division. And there's a picture of Nick right there. And Nick and I were just talking casually l the other day, maybe Tuesday. We were talking about the, the C-130 came up. And you said something like, oh, yeah, boy, when you're in you know, when you're in a firefight in Afghanistan and you see one of those gunships, I guess these could be modified into, into gunships, you feel very, it's like a, it's like a, what'd you say, like a security blanket. Yeah, it's like uh, the Lord Jesus himself has come to save you from that battle. Uh, yeah, so there's a 105 millimeter howitzer, uh, modified howitzer on there. The Afghans learn, uh, like the Taliban learned very quickly on in that conflict, 
exactly what those birds are capable of. Like they would go on YouTube and see the videos as well. They would see there's thermal cameras on them and they can just hover on station for seem like forever and just rain down absolute misery. So it would, it would circle kind of like tilted to the side so that that cannon could then fire on the enemy and just kind of circle around, is that how it works? Yeah, and there's like a TV monitor on board that they watch and it's like, it's like a thermal black-white screen and they can track individuals and in their movement so they can follow. Like if a guy goes behind a building, they'll circle around to that side and then engage him. But yeah, it's the most comforting that and the A-10, you know, we talk a lot of crap about the Air Force, but really, like, the AC-130 and the A-10 saved numerous army butts <laughs> in Afghanistan. Uh, and they both have distinct sounds to them, too, and we would recognize that, and the Taliban would recognize that. So you would hear them coming before you saw them, sometimes? Well, uh, sometimes. At night, certainly. Okay. Uh, you'd hear them well before you'd see them. But they would show up, and after a while, you know, uh, once you could even start to hear them, guys would start running away because they knew exactly what was coming after them. And I wonder if anybody else here has had like an experience with that, with an AC-130, with one of these gunships. I believe they started to be used late in the Vietnam War, but I'm not exactly sure. Todd, if, if we could identify troops in open, uh, I had to have troops in open. Sometimes I cheated, but we had Puff the Magic Dragon. That's what George said. We had them on station, and we used them all the time. you got to translate. Puff the Magic Dragon. Puff the Magic Dragon was an airplane similar to that, and uh, they would come by and strafe troops. But I had to have troops in the open. You had to have troops in the open? Right. So the enemy troops in the open. Okay. Right. right. Okay. So they were, they were a somewhat familiar sight to you. Absolutely. We used them all the time. Don? Yeah, they were DC-3s. DC-3s? Yeah. Were similarly armed? They had Gatling guns on both both sides of the... Uh, that's all they carried is fuel and ammunition. Would you mind standing up for a second? Yeah, DC-3s, that's what they used. That's and what they were got. these Air Force planes? Uh, I think so, they, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. What were they? No, DC-3s, I think they were... Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, I like it when we start getting into an argument. Uh, I'm a member of the uh, Air Heritage Group up in Beaver County. And uh, they have an aircraft up there that was used as a test bed, the C-123. And they modified that in Vietnam to be one of the first. The actual first was a C-47 when I was there. They made it into an AC-47, which was Snoopy and various other names. And it was the first gunship. Then the C-123 was modified. Uh, they have a C-123. If anybody wants to see a restored one, one of the few flying in the United States, go up to the Air Heritage Museum in Beaver County and you'll see that. The third plane that was then developed as a gunship was the C-130 that is still used today and one of the most effective ground support elements ever made. George, thank you. I'm glad we had him here to clear all this up. But was this, is, the, is the idea, though, that if you're, you're on the ground and you see this superior, um, you know, firepower coming in the air, it's a, it's a good feeling? Yeah? Okay. They're looking at me like, yeah, that's the stupidest question ever. Yes, Kathy. When I was stationed in Morocco with the Navy, the C-130s would come in and take personnel to Europe for medical reasons, and I remember this plane very well. Did you ever fly in one? Yes, I sat on a wooden crate in the back. They didn't have seats. We had nets and crates that we sat on. All right, thank you, Kathy. Anybody else have a memory? Oh, okay, all right, here we go. 
Hey, Jake. Hey. Uh, that last plane they were talking about, uh, I flew on the AC-130 gunship out of uh, Udorn, Thailand. Uh, they were used in 72 and 73 extensively, and uh, we flew mostly over Laos and Cambodia. I wasn't a pilot. I was a crew member. Uh, and what they, was your job on the crew? Well, I was uh, security police at the time, with security forces later, but uh, my job was what they called kicking out flares. But it was actually a little mortar that you fired the flares out so that the AC-130 could look down at what it wanted to fire at. Oh, okay, so they, they weren't there to, like, heat-seeking to draw heat-seeking missiles. This is for something different. This was for so something different. This was to light up the sky at night. Got it. So you could take out the convoys. Got it. That were coming over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Interesting. Thank you, Jake. Thank you for that. Anyone else? You could add to that. Larry, sure. Hi, Larry Guggins. I flew F-4s in Vietnam out of Thailand. The uh, AC-130s were actually in uh, Laos in 1970, a little bit earlier than Jake just mentioned. Uh, originally, we would escort the AC-47, Spooky, and then they were replaced with the AC-130s, and their call sign was Spectre. If anybody ever uh, knows that, S-P-E-C-T-R-E. -E, I've seen that written, yeah. What we would do out of Karat, Thailand, is the AC-130s would fly up and down the Ho Chi Minh Trail just like that at night. And they had early night vision devices on there so they could see the trucks driving up and down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. What we would do is we would take off, hit a tanker, a refuel, go over and meet with the uh, AC-130s and fly above them. And when the guns would start shooting at the AC-130s, they'd pull off the trail, we'd roll in on the guns, kind of, anyway. I don't know if we could describe it, but these guns were shooting tracers that didn't light off till about 1,000 feet in the air. So at night, when everything's blacked out, and, and I'm sure some others can re uh, relate to this, you're looking at a gun that's flying out of a black hole that doesn't light off a tracer till a thousand feet, flying a semicircle around it and try to roll in on this black hole. The chances of hitting this gun was slim to none, but it made a big bang. And a lot of times I think they said, hey, maybe we'll just sit this one out and they stop firing at this AC-130s. And then they go back and do their work. What we'd do is cycle on and off the tanker. Once we ran out of uh, ordnance, then we'd go back home and another flight would would uh, meet up with the... I'm sorry, uh, Larry, you would cycle on and off the tanker. You're meaning for refueling? Yeah, for refueling, I'm sorry. We talked about that at one of the other yeah. previous meetings. Yeah, we would take off out of Karat, get on the tanker, refill, fill up, go and escort the C-130 for about 30, 45 minutes, go back to the tanker, refuel again, and then go back. We'd have a flight of four, two at a time, would cycle back and forth until we ran out of ordnance. And we'd do that probably for about five hours during the middle of the night. But to watch this, where I'm really going is not what I did. To watch this is amazing, like we just talked about. When that AC-130 goes up and down a Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, strafing and doing whatever they do, we're doing to these trucks with ammunition, and they would hit this truck, it would look, we'd be like fireworks going off. And of course, you'd celebrate, and it would be a good day. It would actually light up the sky, and, the, and because of the night vision scopes that they had, they'd have to ha actually have to move further down the trail because it was too bright for them, and then go back. But it is an amazing airplane. I don't know if anybody here ever worked on an AC-130, but they are amazing what they can do, and the accuracy of those guns is phenomenal. Did anybody here serve on an AC-130? Mike, did you? No? Anyway, thanks, Todd. Thank you very much, Larry.
so nobody's going to confess to having served on an AC-130. I can also tell you that uh, they've modified that plane so much. In the Gulf War, it was much more powerful than the one they used in Vietnam and the one they used that he was talking about in Afghanistan. I mean, they used to fly with a big crew. Now they have so many computers on board, they right. can fly with a very small crew. Right. Thank you, Jake. Hey, Nick, I have a question for you. Um, again, this, I think, probably a stupid question. Let's say you're in a firefight in Afghanistan and an AC-130 shows up and gives you the support that you need and, and maybe, maybe saves your life or maybe saves the mission. Do you ever get a chance to kind of thank the crew of that ship that came or are they so far away that you, your paths are never gonna cross? Yeah, no, they're very far away. They're, you know, like on the ground, it's like 12 hours. If we had the opportunity, it would have been awesome because we found out later, the only thing cooler than seeing artillery flying in the air was the name of the task force that this aviation was part of. They were called uh, Task Force Pale Horse, which was after you know the first revelation, like, behold, a pale horse on it was a rider named Death and Hell followed him. So we found that Bible. out, and they were like double cool, because it was the coolest name we'd ever heard for like the coolest instrument of destruction we'd ever seen. So you never got to say thank you to those crews that showed up. Nah, nah, I have no idea who was on them. You just hear, you'd hear one guy's voice that you'd communicate with. So you do, you do communicate with them when they come in? Yeah, because you'd let them know where you were. You'd mark you where friendly is. You'd show them where the enemy's at, and then they'd go to work. Jim, were you going to say something? Could you stand up, please? Jim, you were a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Yeah, and, and I have a question for, okay. the, uh, for the Air Force guys. I, I never, we use both Spooky and Puff the Magic Dragon. And I'm trying to understand the difference between the two. Okay, there was Spooky, which was... A call oh, sign. Snoop, but Snoopy, you said, oh, it was a call sign. George, okay. why don't you sort, uh, sort this out here? There was Snoopy, there was Spooky, and there was Puff the Magic Dragon, right? Yeah, they were given uh, different names. Uh, even in individual aircraft were given names also. But uh, Spooky was the first one. That was the AC-47. And uh, they had a picture on the front on the nose. Uh, the... Uh, the AC-123, um, uh, which one of them is up at the Air Heritage Museum, they modified them and they only built three of them. And they tested them and they were very effective, but they never built them in large numbers. And uh, they were called Black Widow, actually, because it was mostly a nighttime aircraft that would do ground support, because they, they were testing all kind of instruments. And then, uh, you know, Snoopy came later and then They've, I think they even have new names today. I'm not sure. Did they have names in, uh, for the, the 130s, the AC-130s in Afghanistan? Nicknames? Uh, just Spectres. Spectres. Yeah. The Spectre gunship is now the official name of the aircraft in that form, yeah. Puff was uh, an AC-47 also. That's what I mean. They had several names for them. Okay. I hope that clarifies. Thank you, George. I'm more confused than ever. <laughs> Jim, did you want to say something? No? Here you go. I was fortunate enough to get out of Da Nang and wind up at Udorn Air Base in Thailand, and that's as far north as you could go there. Uh, we had all those gunships. We didn't have the AC-130s. We had the AC-47s, which civilians called DC-3s. We had Stinger gunships were uh, flying boxcars they used to use right here. 
and they made gunships out of those. And all our planes were painted black. We had C-130s and we had E-C-130s. E was, uh, they put like a trailer, like a house trailer into the back of the C-130s and they were in-flight command posts. And the guy who uh, flew the F-4s, he probably knows more about those than I do. Uh, but they, I guess they controlled what was going on during combat missions. And why were your planes painted black? Because they were all night mission aircraft. They're the ones were at our base. Got it. And uh, our base, I, we had so many different kind of airplanes taken off and they, all these different civilian type aircraft. I said, what are they? I mean, you had like Piper Cubs, C, uh, Cessnas, and then these little cargo planes that barely could get off the ground. Later we found out on the other side of the runway, where it used to be all Japanese barracks from World War II, that was Air America. And they were flying out of there into Laos and Cambodia. Which was CIA. Which was CIA. Right. And I got to meet a few of those guys. They're good drinkers. They did a lot of that. But that's what we had. I was in the avionics, so I did everything with the electronics on the dashboard, your, your instrument panel. But uh, worked mainly on the F-4s, and we had reconnaissance F-4s over there as well. We had the, the only three Air Force ace, aces from Vietnam were all stationed at Udorn Air Base. They all flew out of that base. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for that. Okay, I know that we're reaching the end of the program, but I uh, thought it would be appropriate to introduce Harry Lee to everybody. I just met Harry this morning. This is his first event. So he may be mad at me for making him talk. Um, but Harry, you were uh, night fighting or night flying, combat night missions was brought up. You were on some of the very first night missions that were flown in, in um, that were started in World War II. You were a Marine aviator? Yeah, uh, Marine Corps uh, had airplanes too, uh, in case somebody doesn't question. Okay, Marine Corps had their own airplanes, and you, you were a bombardier navigator on a yes, B-25? I, I was a bombardier navigator. Uh, we we uh, operated out of Saipan, and then as soon as they uh, invaded Iwo Jima, we moved up there, and from there we could search the coast of Japan. Yeah, we would uh, be able to search the uh, shore of Japan, and we were anti-shipping. We worked at night. Uh, using radar, we had a radar bomb site, and uh, our navigation was all celestial uh, because we didn't have any GPSs at that time. You didn't have iPhones in 1945? No, I don't think so. No, okay. <laughs> so uh, anyhow, uh, we, we flew uh, a lot of missions and scored a lot of hits, and we aided in a lot of the invasions up in that area because we had sunk a lot of their ships before they could get to resupply the troops that they had. So uh, the navigation system, uh, people don't understand how we could navigate, but it was all done by a sextant uh, shooting the stars and then calculating the position to where we are. And that was really tricky when we were stationed on Iwo Jima. That uh, island is seven mile, or five miles long and three miles wide. So when we left Japan, it was 700 miles back to Iwo Jima, 
and you had to hit that target three miles wide after flying 700 miles. So that made it pretty tricky. And, uh, but uh, we went overseas with 16 airplanes. We lost 10 of them, and we lost 39 men. And when we ended up, we were on Okinawa waiting, waiting to be shipped into Japan on November of 45. So uh, after that, I, uh, we were lucky, and most of us made it back. Thank you. I, I, some, I just want one more question, and that was, I think you told me that some of your missions, you were flying 100 feet off the ground? Well, yeah. Uh, we didn't know for sure what the Japanese radar was like. So uh, we would fly north toward Japan up at five or 6,000 feet, wherever we could get the best wind. But when we got within 100 miles of uh, the coast of Japan, we would let down and fly 100 feet uh, so that the radar couldn't pick us up. And uh, so we, uh, uh, that's the way we snuck in, kind of, because radar, uh, when you're down close to the water, it gives you like static and uh, you can't see uh, airplanes coming in at that altitude. Harry, I cannot believe that you're 91 years old. Well, you're not supposed to tell anybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Thank you very much, Harry. We've reached the end of the program. Thank you all for coming out this morning. I do hope you stay and tour the airplane and the other displays. I want to thank everybody here at the 9-11th Airlift Wing. Colonel Van Duding, thank you so much for, uh, thank you so much for having us here. What a wonderful morning. I do want to invite everybody to any of our other events which are listed in our newsletter and our schedule. We always like to end with God Bless America and I'm going to ask our singers, yep. Thank you very much for singing. Sure, absolutely. Just before we um, sing the God Bless America, can I just draw your, draw your attention to this flyer on your table? Uh, we warmly invite you to come to our service of remembrance this Sunday, September 11th, uh, in Heinz Memorial Chapel up in Oakland. We'll be paying... Uh, tribute to uh, the veterans, both those that are living and those that have died to protect our freedom. Please take these brochures with you and pass them out tomorrow and perhaps on Sunday morning at church uh, and uh, join us for what will be a really fantastic tribute to our veterans. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her with a light from the light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans white with foam. God bless America, my home sweet home. God bless America, my home sweet home. This has been a live recording of the Veterans Breakfast Club. For more information about our local storytelling events and how veterans can preserve their stories for future generations, call 412-623-9029 or visit our website at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Thanks for listening.